0: Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sadnikar, and we're starting this episode a little differently um, based on the suggestion from super producer Cole Weinman. I uh, wanted to give you some context about the episode you're going to listen to. It's one of the longest conversations we've had with anybody. So it's going to be broken up into two parts and this came about, this podcast is unique for several different reasons. Um, one it's the first one I've done, uh, with super producer Cole in the room, which was a great experience. Uh, actually kind of needed and wanted him there and I'll explain why in a minute. It, involves a bunch, uh, of people involved with PTSD from the military. Um, and this episode started out as an idea to just go talk to my friend Victor as most of these episodes do and just have a conversation. And from that genesis of that idea, it went from, just a a one-on-one conversation to, I would say almost a panel discussion with people that are involved as veterans with PTSD. We had a uh, clinical psychologist there, uh, a doctor from the VA, documentary filmmaker, some people that uh, are involved with helping vets recover. And it went from that... And we actually recorded this at the top of the uh, clock tower in uh, downtown Denver. And it went for me personally from being all, all these podcasts are important. Um, but this one definitely had some gravity and some different feel to it. And We went into this as this group thinking that if one person heard this and knew how to better relate to someone with PTSD or there was somebody that was struggling with it that heard this and we reached one person, then this was all worthwhile. So it was very humbling. Uh, it was an honor to talk to everybody in this room and it was very thankful that they had agreed to open up and take the time. So with that, um, yeah, I I don't, I'm not going to say, I hope you enjoy it, but I would appreciate you listening and sharing this if you found it impactful. Thank you very much. (laughs) I'm <laughs> sorry. Uh, welcome to the
1: podcast. This is Matt Sotnickart. Tonight is a uh, very unique event for
2: the show. Uh, it's the first time I've ever recorded live with Super Freezer Cole by my side, and we're actually at the uh, Clock Tower Building downtown Denver. And uh, this episode has evolved from talking to a very good friend of mine, Victor Felkers, into sort of like a roundtable discussion centered around
0: veterans, uh, mental health issues, uh, perhaps PTSD. And uh, Victor has taken a a lot of work to set this up, so thank you. And let's go around the room and introduce our guests, and then we'll start
2: the the episode. Uh, Good to be here. Um, Victor Felkers. Um, I served 24 years in total between the Marine Corps and the Army, and uh, had several combat tours, and I've been a civilian for about six years, living the mountain cabin life now, it's paradise, Love and life. I'm Mark Poggle, I was an uh, Army National Guard, uh, first started as an aircraft electrician, was picked up in OCS, was required to become an engineer, deployed Iraq in 2003, and um, Now I'm an engineer for the National Parks Service. I'm Michael DiUana, I'm a uh, journalist and I cover veterans' issues among other things. Oh, uh, my name is uh, Dr. Hull and uh, I'm a six-year Army veteran. I uh, started out in the mental health field in that route, and then uh, now I work as a staff psychologist at the uh, Denver County Jail. Also, uh, own a private practice and teach at DU. Um, so yeah, that's uh, now I, I obviously live in Denver area as well. Uh, practice in that regard. Uh, my name is Mark Drake. I'm totally uh, disabled from the military. Uh,
3: I have uh, PTSD. Uh, I was a medic in Vietnam. with went back. Uh, I was uh, triage medic. First treatment off the helicopters. go a few missions. And um, it was a tough time and place for me. Uh, it wasn't was even 21 when I came out of the military. I only spent it was 19 months. And um,
4: it's affected the rest of my life. Hi, I'm Peggy Steve Meininger, um, I'm from Lublin. I have been volunteering and working with veterans and combat veterans for the past 10 years with the recycling and the fly fishing.
2: Happy to be here thank you. I'm uh, I also Match Help Vlogs. Uh <laughs> I many other I, mean, I, mean, I, mean. uh, I actually also did have a stand of PTSD I've never served, it was from a different experience. But yeah, so
0: um not really sure where to start, but I know Victor the Longest and Yeah. Uh, you know, tell me briefly about what your vision is for your cattle and
1: lions and and where that's gonna go. Because that was that was the original
0: basis for this episode
2: and it is more, but you know why are you doing what you're doing? Well I've always as a kid I always imagined that I would live in the mountains one day and I actually do a cool little picture of it when I was like fourteen or fifteen but um, you know I realized after I retired it took a full year until the wheels really fell off for me, and I just absolutely just lost my marbles, just lost it, and um, and so the you know at that time I had been reaching out to and curing for veterans with PTSD, um, and uh, well I turned out to you know I turned out to be one of those soldiers with PTSD myself, and and I think. Um, and as a matter of fact, one of the people, two of the people, hold on, three of the people, or four, four of the people who helped save my life are sitting right here in this room um, Matt, that you sue, Mark, and also Michael. Um, but, uh, you know, my life now in the mountains, um, I really returned. I got to a place in my healing that I was able to really find find my place in life again and and my place is is no longer being a soldier it's no longer protecting everyone it's no longer guarding and and having my guard up Um, to learn to live a life of joy um
3: that's what i would hope for everyone Uh, and i think that many people who serve
2: um that joy can dissipate it can disappear um, and you lose yourself completely anyway that cabin now is really a healing place for me I'm in the middle of nature and you know I've had a yoga retreat there I I bring up friends whenever I can and um, you know it's a it's a special place it's uh, it's a place for me to connect and I hope for it to be a place for others to connect to Uh, Mark, did you want to you know, talk about your uh, experience or your challenges? I mean, so interesting for me. So um, you're neighbors, right? It's your yeah, neighbors. yeah, we are. Um, I didn't get my PTSD from the military. I got it before I went to the military, um, and I think I was very fortunate when I was in combat uh, looking for IEDs and York, So I that sort of stuff. Um, to. Never have a trigger mm-hmm. um, that was so closely related to that those experiences that had in Florida. Um, so I came out fine from that specific issue, uh, but obviously, you know, when you get to older people to go get for homes and Those sorts of things that people are making. But that job, uh, you get to watch, if you will, very good people. And so sometimes, it's totally out of, out of the blue, surprise which people. Um, get triggered and what triggers them and so that, that became a very interesting observation and for my counselor when i came back i have a good friend and the family member but the same person who does this for the army. And the matically you're clear. so had very good soldiers, to flip. Just absolutely lose it. Grab me by the front of my uniform and, and just they were they were done. And it was was just something that, you know, I knew they were prepared for. But something about the situation um, really set them off. Um, I was kind of square while I went. I'm still really (laughs)
1: square.
2: (laughs) <laughs> but the platoon I was in charge of, you know, I rotated into the sappers, if you will, the kids that go play with the explosives. And when I first entered that unit, uh, the platoon sergeant did the right thing, cornered me and said, okay, the you're not allowed to make decisions for two weeks. Roger got it. That's where it's supposed to work. You need to see how things work first before you go try and make anything change. And then uh, he said, oh, by the way... <clears throat> You're the only soldier in this platoon that's never been to jail. (laughs) For somebody as square as I am, that was an interesting piece of information. But I will tell you, those soldiers have more street-savvy individually than I'll have in my entire life, Um, and that was super valuable. I'm not going to tell you they were an easy bunch to manage, though the army regulations, the boundaries, the squares, all that stuff simply didn't work for me. But they were really good on the street, so.
1: Michael, tell us about your involvement your film projects.
2: Let's see. Well, I guess you could go back to 2004 when I was a reporter at in Colorado Springs for a newspaper, and um, of course the Iraq and Afghanistan wars were going on, and. Um, you know I just started to ask this question and actually there were some activists in the community asking this question and I I wanted to get an answer to it what are the hidden costs of war and I started digging around on it and um, I got an answer that I didn't expect I was you know I was looking for I was actually literally looking for dollar signs Um, but but, uh, some people came forward in the community and they told me that there were troops coming back to Fort Carson who were struggling um, with um, their commanders. They were having issues with their commanders, and um, but they were also having psychological issues. And so, um, you know, I just kind of keep working at it and got to know uh, several of these soldiers. In fact, one of them um, moved in across the hall from me. He was my neighbor. And uh, we went out drinking one night. And I kind of realized that, um, you know, through a lot of experiences, uh, reporting and personal, that... PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress. I don't know if it's a disorder or not, uh, but post-traumatic stress was, was pretty um, pervasive um, already in 2004 in in the military and. There are a lot of reasons for it, um, multiple deployments, um, extended deployments at that time. Um, and then just the nature of the conflict and especially in Iraq at the time, um, being, you know, there were no clear battle lines. Um, and then lots of, uh, soldiers having witnessed, um, or been the victims of violence. So um, so you know what came next was you know, I started digging even deeper and I found some guys were getting kicked out of the army. So um, so I did stories on it back then, and that's been a theme that I've done stories on for more than a decade now, more than a decade, the same story over and over again, in many ways, many versions, many different versions. Um, um, the, the, the downsides are there are tens of thousands of troops who've been discharged with uh, no benefits um, who have um, problematic paperwork that prevents them from getting care and they tend to be the soldiers who are most in need of care most in need of psychological or um, and or medical care for, for example for brain injuries um, but, but also you know I've looked at the upsides um, what do soldiers do um um, what do troops do when they're injured to recover from those injuries? So, I spent um, an entire summer following uh, veterans on bicycles. Um, it kind of, turned me into a pretty good road cyclist <laughs> uh, so because um, you know, my first day I went out there, I was expected to be like squinting off the horizon drinking you know, lukewarm coffee, directing a film, a uh, documentary and, um, on the back of a motorcycle or in a in a truck or something. And um, These guys were like, hey, you're going you know, to ride with us? Um, and, yeah. you know, I had a little, little experience a and then they then they started to pop they were like you know because you don't want to be like that Fox News reporter who got on her bike and rode a half a mile with us and then got off and then stood up in front of the camera while we were riding past and talked about what a hard ride that was <laughs> and I was like no no I don't want to be that guy yes I don't want to be that guy So I rode and we ended up riding this like exhausting 60 mile ride in 95 degree weather in Virginia, which was horrible. It was horrible. You know, people were just, you know, falling off their bikes. It was so hot. Um, then the next day, um, they came up to me, you gonna ride? <laughs> so I ended up riding with them all summer as part of the film, and that's how I got to know a lot of these veterans. So um, up close and, and, um, and more personally than I guess I had in any other kinds of stories that I've done in the past. This is in uh, 2011 12 time frame. Kind of how I got to know Victor really well. We rode our bikes many, many Miles, and I don't know if, I don't know when I saved your life, Victor, I don't, there's a lot to put on me, but, but I do know that we rode as friends many, many miles, um, especially one year, we were just kind of like riding, we rode and rode and rode and rode. Um, well, you know, and yeah, that was a good thing. It was good to just ride our bikes. What you just said is, is it, I think, uh, what saved my life is having a couple of really good friends, and you're one. You to it and sometimes it's all it takes. Yeah, and I, I learned to listen from from doing these stories that I, that I've done, so many of them, and talking to so many veterans. Um, and there's the line when you're a journalist, you know, you want to, you have to be objective, so you have to separate your friends from your your stories, you know. But. Um, you know, when I was in the middle of that film, I was in the middle middle of the group. I was pulled right into the group. So, um, you know, it was a very um, the lines were a little softer, I would say, because I got to know people on a very personal, really personal level, and 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 um, but that helped me tell their stories. I think even more clearly. It helped me get to their um, the stories that they wouldn't tell anyone else. Because you're on the inside. Yeah, and it was important to, to, to document that. Um, but but beyond, beyond documenting things as a journalist, I kind of go to this next level where um, a lot of Americans uh, are kind of blissfully unaware. They're blissfully unaware that there's um, that there's wars still going on right now. That there are people. There are still casualties. There are still deaths. That are happening, and um, and that's been going on since 2001. Um, and um, you know, I think that we all have a responsibility to be witnesses. You know, to to witness um, the reality that is. That is America, right? And so, um, part of that is, I think, getting to actually know a veteran, or getting to know someone who is serving. Um, because um, in the past, I mean, most most people had that experience as Americans because of the draft, because of, of years of conflict before that. But now, without a draft, you have um, you you have troops who are um, increasing. Um, isolated from the rest of the country, and their experiences and the experiences of military families are um, are happening in increasing isolation from from the general public. So, I, I think that there's a disconnect in. Um, Gosh, you know, for years, I mean, back in 2004, we were talking about it a lot. You know, people, I remember veterans or troops at the time saying, you know, where is everyone? Everyone's got a, at that time, everyone had an American flag or a yellow ribbon up on their um, tree or on their car. Um, But even then, troops were telling me about that disconnect. And I think it's only gotten deeper uh, to the point where nobody he's been talking about so so that's that's where where I am you know and I I think about that in particular about the Vietnam guys because uh, the the Vietnam guys uh, um, you know the the younger troops that I've talked to and I I think I was been on the front lines of this part of it cultural this cultural part where uh, veterans like Victor could actually openly talk about post-traumatic stress to a friend could open when we talk uh, to a journalist about it. Um, where there could be a warrior games that's going to be happening down in Colorado Springs right now and um, have everyone in the military recognize that that's an element of your service and um, that, that post-traumatic stress may be an element of your service. There may be a disability. And I don't think um, the country has yet um, stood up and recognized the Vietnam veterans especially on that. And I think that the Vietnam veterans have been
3: wanting to talk about it for a long, long long time. Just to answer, I think one of the things that a lot of Vietnam vets I've talked to feel the same way I do is that we were betrayed by our country. And I think that's the biggest story to to my side.
4: And I'd also like to interject something that what I've seen the Vietnam veterans do and reach out for the young ones coming up has been phenomenal over and over again. The Vietnam veterans have shown them, have been at the gates greeting. Um, That's right. I work with an the organization that they support. supported, bike the, they supported
2: those bike rides too. They were yeah. they were the dudes on the party. So they, Their the, the <laughs> the wives are with them.
4: Cookies and staying up all night making sure things there. So I have to say thank you. Because you guys made
3: damn sure that it did not happen
1: to the next group, I think
3: and that that's one. not that That's one of the things that, that I and my friends, I have coffee with the group of Vietnam Mets every morning, safely. Um, we want to be all inclusive, not just to Vietnam Mets. People know why we invite a lot of people to our group, and, you know, every once in a while someone will them join. It's a size that's taken a little bit more, sometimes even less. Um, we were so Betrayed by the country when we came back we were totally franchise that was my feeling they had no idea what we were doing over there and I mean I was even 21 when I came back you know so it's difficult I'll, I'll, I'll talk about I just, it's just yeah.
4: tough. But like I said I've seen some Bob Racine from Warrior I volunteered with him many years ago and Vietnam veterans spit on coming back through San Francisco swore he would never ever let that happen and he has kept his word all the way across um, the gentleman that I've worked with with the Fly Fish and the thing. they show up and they show up every single week for every single thing and I know they're tired but they are still showing up, and that's to be committed. Yeah. And the young guys appreciate it because they have somebody that can, they can go out with and find someone who says, I have been in combat, I have been in to in combat, let's go fishing, let's go for a walk, let's go have coffee, let's just sit on the porch and talk. And that listening is so important, and that's what they
3: do. Yeah.
1: <laughs> No, no. We don't
3: need that either. Well, my issues <laughs> is just really so I can say
2: that. <laughs> uh, Trey, give us a brief overview of your experience, but what is, uh, like, what are, you, I mean, with the three introductions you've heard here, what are some of your thoughts or talents you're facing with uh, your patients? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I think uh, well. So I joined army in two thousand and seven. Uh, although uh, I was a military brat, my dad retired uh, from the army as well, so I've been experiencing that for a long time. And. I think it was interesting is that we had uh, very vastly different experiences in the military. Uh, my dad actually never deployed uh, while well, he was in the military, but uh, I deployed to Afghanistan as part of uh, the mental health unit that I was a part of at uh, Wisconsin. Uh, we were involved. I wasn't sure if I was actually going to talk about this, but interesting that it just came up. Uh, my unit was involved in the 12-foot shooting uh-huh. in 2009, uh, and we deployed about three weeks later. At that point, so our unit was I think the first sort of full mental health unit that put troops on ground in Afghanistan at the time and sort of built up some of the services from Kandahar south in Afghanistan at that point. So after that, I think I experienced some of my own trauma around coming back home and reintegrating into life. And uh, I was already sort of in the mental health field at that point, uh, pursuing that training through the military. So uh, I decided, well, why not uh, keep going here? And uh, so continued on and got my doctorate. And I think the thing that has stuck out to me from the get-go is the strong interest in trauma in general. And obviously that's a pervasive thing that happens in the military for a myriad of different reasons. But since that time, I have chosen, I think, not to specifically not work directly with the VA and those sorts of populations because I think some of the treatment modalities that are available and the culture around how that's treated are dissonant from what I might look for uh, or look to do with them. So I've kind of pursued that indirectly in different ways. Uh, Like We have, for example, a decent veteran population that's in the jail, unfortunately, and I've tried to do some work in my practice. through teaching at the University of Denver uh, and integrating some of that. Like, the joke that I'll commonly make about folks who, you know, want to get some handle on military training or get an experience in culture, like you were talking about, is uh, just to go sit in a VA waiting room for about two hours. (laughs) And just, you know, sit there and you know listen to the stories that you know older veterans or younger ones talk about. Uh, the pharmacy is a great place for that waiting room because you'll sit there for two hours waiting on a prescription or something like that and you, you just get to sort of feel the culture
1: in there. People riff on stories that they, you know, have in their experience. And,
2: uh, it's really kind of a, both a funny and enlightening experience to be sitting that waiting room, for example. So um, I think one of the things that sticks out to me the most from what we've talked about thus far is this real
1: kind of focus on resilience and and, and this witnessing function that
2: comes from either service members as well or from other people uh, who may not have experience in the service at all but are still focused on integrating into that culture somehow and I think that that, in some of the psychological psychological literature that's I think referred to often as like emotional dwelling Uh, and I think that that is one of maybe probably the biggest piece I think psychologically that I can bring to this conversation. I think that's such an essential component beyond any other kind of treatment modality that we might look at. Because, as you guys have noted, the experience of being with and being for one another is essential. So, I think those are, I mean, kind of some broad highlights around my experience. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely the,
3: an interesting journey. Thank you. Mark. I like your point about uh, being with each other is that uh, I kept in touch with uh, one of my buddies from Vietnam and, uh, the only one. Um, and we weren't always on the best of terms. We were both medics at Medic, triage medics. And we, we had a few run-ins, but we always had each other's back. I can say that one thing about the medical service and military. doesn't matter what's going on between the people that you shouldn't or the other. you know it's everything goes away and you do your job it's, it's uh, it, at time it's really tough. You know, I, I uh, I was in 2011 when I came home from Vietnam. I spent 14 months in Vietnam. I extended two months so I could get out of the army. I was fried within three or four months of the trauma. I mean we had two medevacs, uh, we had a, a radio operator, we did the first evacuations from the bikes. You know, we had a lot of overruns uh, middle of the night, our bases. Uh, you know, we've got to the point where we hear the, the helicopters spooling up and we might as well be able to get dressed. Well, most of us, like myself, I wore a pair of white swim trunks and a surgery's pocket, because loss because it's so much easier to clean up from the blood guts and gore. That's what it was. Um, you got used to having blood on it. You know, you can work for three or four hours, and then you finally had to clean up. Um, the uh, I don't know if that had a long-term effect on me, but you know, just thinking about it, it's um, it's blood the blood my brothers. You know, these kids were all my age. In 1920, I went not 20 years old when I came back to Vietnam. Maybe I had kids 17 years old. There were kids that were 16 years old and killed in Vietnam uh, that went the service illegally. Uh, but they're patriots, or they were trying to get away from something at home. That was another issue I had, was that I was abused by my father uh, physically. He used to beat the whole shit out of me. And, uh, it never really came out a lot in my um, therapy at the VA because I was really ashamed. And I think was because I thought a lot of it was my own fault. My dad was an asshole. You know, but things changed as I got older and stuff like that. My dad was, you know, he had heart surgery and I went over and kissed him on the cheek. And everybody in the, and my family was there. My siblings and my mom, I, there was this audible gasp. One of them said, Mark kissed dad. You know, I still love my dad, but that's who he was, uh, and my dad was in World War II. He was an aircraft mechanic um, in World War II, and I know he lost crews, you know, those, those, they lost hundreds of men in aircraft. And um, so, I, my dad had PTSD. And so I, I, never really brought it out to my therapist because um, I thought that was my freaking business. I thought my major issue, really, it really was, really my experience of Vietnam dealing with all the trauma that we um, had. It's, again, I, and I go back to again the toughest part of seeing my peers dead or dying and preventing them from dying. We never lost a GI. When I was in Vietnam, I met him back when I was working, I never had a G.I.G. I'm sure someone died later. Uh, Someone died in Japan, you know, because infection is a real issue in Vietnam. I think mine is just that I wish I could have done more, but I realized I couldn't. I did everything I could. uh, yeah. my, my, my wife grew up with a Navy coroner, who's Marines, the two tours of me, and they're like, you know, guy, they ended up committing suicide, uh, which I had known, you know, just because he's my, my wife's my father, um, the guy was a freaking hero. That it just toasted me. PTSD, and, you know, back in the day, we had one psychiatrist, his little office behind where my x-ray was, and occasionally he would be out doing rounds on the, on the base camp where we were in and people would come in for treatment, and, and I would sit down and do the, interview, the interviews, doing right, right in fill in the blanks, you know, for him, so when they came back, he would save some time, he we, we had we had a lot of PTSD that we uh, that, that we treated, um, and it was it was a shared experience among all of us. You know, not everybody gets along in a group. But I, think I, I said this to her earlier: is that, you know, she hit the fan we were one of, our, she, we couldn't put a piece of wax paper between us. That's how kids we worked together. Um, and our whole goal was to save our buddies. We didn't know these kids, you know. Um, we were all kids. And it's, it's that, that's the thing that, that bothers me the most about our country is that. It's about the fucking money. It's all about the money. War is adult, the industrial war machine. Destroyed has destroyed Americans men over and over again through its history. Agreed. Uh, and there's no way to stop it. <clears throat> the politicians' politicians to war it will change. Mm-hmm. Well, I think they. You know, I. I, I think they should be. If they're going to go to war, they ought to do like they did back in the Middle Ages. They need the charge. You know, if they survive, fine. If they don't, they get, they get replaced. But that's not going to happen. You know, um, but I appreciate being invited to this. Uh, it's been very enlightening. Uh, it's made me reflect on a number of different things when you guys talk. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, I don't know what more to can contribute right now, but um, I'd like to say that things like this need to be done more frequently. Um, I, and the group I meet with every morning for coffee, every one of us is 100% for post-expression disorder. And we're always giving each other shit. You know, it's just a, it's a big joke. But the other thing is, as fellow soldiers, we've always had each other's back. You know, if I give you shit all day long, nobody else is going to give you shit. You. you know, right. That's, <laughs> that, you know
4: we're, we're here for each other. You know, Victor told me that, and I didn't realize this until you told me this, that I encourage you to talk to Mark, It was after you talked to Mark that I told did something.
2: Yeah, I went to the VA center, and yeah. as a matter of fact, we have the Vietnam veterans to thank for creating the VA center. And and it was interesting. I was already in therapy um, at that point, and I paid out of my own pocket for two civilian therapists. And, and being a very suspicious kind of guy, I hired two therapists to make sure that one wouldn't lead me astray. <laughs> and so, so I was comparing notes. I was comparing notes and making sure that. That something crazy wasn't happening. And um, although I was the crazy one in the room. So, um, but you know, and this this is one thing that I, you know, I, I see an opportunity for us as, you know, as soldiers and combat veterans and, and folks who have supported and know these folks um, and kind of are reaching out to that segment of, of our population. You know, veterans have a unique place in our society around the discussion of mental health, you know, if if the strongest of us, if those who have been trained, actually been trained to go to war and to, they'll, they'll tell you, they'll, they'll tell Americans that we're trained to kill and we're trained to survive and we're trained to, for all these great things, but if the strongest of us who is trained to do that breaks, well, you know what, maybe, maybe it's okay for everybody to break and and maybe that's the veteran's place, you know, today around mental health. Maybe we can lead that charge um, here at home and kind of, and and trauma is trauma, whether it's, you know, military or civilian. And, you know, I think that, I mean, Mark has shown me a great deal of compassion and understanding and, and he's listened. I mean, that's kind of how I got through this. So is Michael. So is that. So is Peggy Sue. Um, and uh, we talk about this stuff openly. And what society needs to really learn to do is is, is have an open mind. You know, open your mind and your heart to, to people who need help. And if you just stop and listen, the pressure and the pressure cooker will dissipate. If you don't, it, it's something bad's going to happen, and in most cases with PTSD, most people don't do harm to anyone else but themselves. Um, you know, I, I don't know what your experience is, Dr. Cole, but, but I think that statistically I think, that, you know, we're a far greater risk to ourselves than anybody
3: else. You know, I think that's, that's a great point, is that as a medic, my whole goal was to relieve suffering. Whatever it was, and the toughest part I saw a guy out of a tree a tree object, for me as far as my PTSD was then reliving their firefight, their injury, the death of their friends. I was not trained to deal with that psychologically in Tim Lee's I I think that's one of the, the largest portion. Of my PTSD is, I know so much shit that's stored away here from every patient, basically, that I treated. To uh, once again, I was not prepared for that part of being a medic. Because you are the confessor. You're the priest. I hate to say it that way. You're the doctor. You're the daughter. You're the son, the father. I mean, it's... They put all that on you. Just, I didn't realize it until I got into therapy years ago with the VA. The, and I will tell you, the VA saved my life. I, I saw these guys with PTSD and like a lot of medics. Well, they're just fucked up. And, and all of a sudden, I'm that fucked up guy. And I'm thinking about suicide. And i got a wife, I've got kids, you know, and I need to be there for them. And from my religious background, it's basically an eternal sin to commit suicide, you know, that kind of thing. Um, So I think anytime somebody comes to you, reach back, touch them back, say, you know, Maybe we haven't been where they are, but I'm here to listen. You said that also. It's really a matter of saying, you know, and I've walked that walk, but I haven't walked your walk. Let's talk about it and let them talk.
1: Thank you. Thank
3: you.
4: So I'm not that you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I actually first met Victor, He's actually one of my oldest friends in Colorado, we
3: figured that out one day. Are you sure you haven't people that are older than he is? No, not here. <laughs> not here.
4: Not here. There's somewhere out there. Uh, Victor and I have known each other for, I've known Victor since he was in the military, before he was at the WTU. Warrior Transition Unit. Warrior Transition Unit. Was...
1: And after,
4: into retirement. So, we have a history. And it's been a pretty damn fun, crazy ride. Mark, I met when Victor and I were, I was working with Victor, and Victor's with me, to put on a sol- Colorado soldier ride in Denver in 2009. Mark was with Adaptive Adventures, Vultures, and I made some hands, I thought. He showed up. And that's how we three got to know each other, got to know Mark even more. Oh, um, that was a good thing or bad, I you? know, right? Megan let's go. Um, my place in all this is in my background is I used to be on the backside of putting together cycling races for collegiate nationals, nationals, um, world qualifiers, so it was pretty heavily on the back side of the cycling. In 2008, spring of 2008, I got a call from Fort Bragg where I had some good friends and a woman asked me if I wanted to go on a ride with a bunch of soldiers and I was thinking Harleys. I wasn't thinking cycling because no one was talking about cycling as therapy really yet out in the rest of the country and at that time the wounded project was run by the Amelia brothers both marines and actually all the upper management at that time were all um, military most people don't know the history of the wounded project so i went out and i went on the road for five days for the, the craziest most foul-mouthed wonderful men i've ever met in my life I watched men show up who had been told they can't do this. You can no longer do this. You're not capable of that. You've got a traumatic range injury, TBI. Um, everything they're told they can't do. And over five days, I watched a bunch of men turn around and go, "All right, now what else can I do?" Men who hadn't been on a bike since they were 12 years old were suddenly riding 40 months, chattering the whole way because there's nothing to do but when you're biking but to talk. A Dodge <laughs> traffic. A Dodge traffic. And like one of the guys said, you know, with my with his PTSD, he came out flat. Said, you know, Pegasus, I can't fight my PTSD. We went back and we it down, and that always stuck with me. I came back, called Victor, said, "Dude," I was always calling all the guys, "Dude, dude, I got something for you." I think this will work. So Victor and I talked about it. Some other men came on, and uh, Mark we used to pick him up on the way. Yeah, he used to pick <laughs> You are a sweet honey on the road, baby. And uh, we put together an, a cycling two-day program. Now a lot of people thought it was to raise money. That was not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal was to get a cycling program into the WTU because they were struggling and they have men sitting, just spinning their heads, spinning their heads, and they introduced the cycling program. You know, thanks to Victor's work down there, but that got started, and I don't even know how many men now have gone through that program, and like done it for a person. It's huge. Well, thanks to Peggy Sue
2: introducing the program, you know, uh at the time, what's, what's, Worden, what's Worden, Worden's first name? John, John. John Worden. Yeah. So, John Worden, he, he kind of runs the uh, ride and recovery program. Um, and then, of course, Soldier Ride um, also got soldiers out on their bikes. Um, you know, I, all I did was basically. Introduce the commanders to the idea and let you guys sit down with you you, Peggy Sue and and some of her crew to sit down with the commanders there, and that was it. I mean, I I encourage people to go out there because you know, I mean, I, I saw I saw the benefits immediately. It was it was it was taking them out of their comfort zone and 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 showing them that there was. It was, it was a novelty to minute, but I think it was a novelty that stuff. And, 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 you know, I, I think it's, it's a way that a lot of people actually have found cycling is a great way to find joy in life again. Mm-hmm. You're with people, you're out in fresh air, you're, you're moving your body. Um, you're pushing that blood yeah. through your brain
3: if you've got a brain injury. It's helping <laughs> get things rehabbed. Yeah, and I think, so, I, I know so cycling sleep I was a cyclist before I service, but not seriously. And I got back and it was PTSD and uh, the first check I got from uh, the VA when I was going to college, I went down and bought myself the best bicycle I could find. Because I was riding a little beat up 10 speed. But I've been a ever since. And to this day, it's the greatest relief for me is to go out and ride 20 or 30 miles on my handsack, 8 or 10 miles. Because I still, have it. I still have the symptoms. I still have all the bullshit that goes along with it. It doesn't go away. It's always there. Wait would bite you in the ass. And when it bites me in the ass, I know exactly where I need to be, is out by myself on the road, dealing with the traffic, you know, singing a song, listening to the birds, watch the bald eagles fly across the road by them. I mean, that that's nirvana for my brain. Yeah, you know. So that I think physical exercise, the aerobic activity, makes a huge difference in depression. We know it does, and um, and anxiety. It's just a matter of getting people to that point. And you there's also, so there's so much fear. also a great transition from military world into civilian world. If you're a cyclist, you're a cyclist. It's a whole new brother. It really is. we will stop. I mean, I stopped doing a just on my derailleur this morning, and two people rolled by. I said, are you okay? Are you okay? And that one happens on the inside of the road. And I do the same thing. Somebody stopped by the road, I always check. Is everything okay? We've got everything covered. Uh, Because we're all out there alone. I mean, sometimes we're riding with a group, but so many of us are riding alone. And... It's too bad our when we're pets, when we're on our feet, when we see people, we never make those connections if we're downtown walking or where we are walking. You know, unless we're walking in our neighborhood. And then we'll say, a little our neighbors, things like that. But out on that road, we all we all realize how vulnerable we are as a business. And how invisible we are. It's called, I used to work for law and law firms on cases, vehicles versus on bicycles, stuff like that. It's called lack of vehicular presence. And I, I think I can relate to that to veterans. We have lack of presence in our own mind. That we're not good enough. That we might be damaged. There's so much going on that we can't sort it out. And we need to make people aware that there are those of us out here that are willing to help you step through that door. Yeah, That's all it takes, that first step, turn that hand and step through it because there are a lot of people that are willing to help. I mean, I talk to a lot of people.
4: You do. And one of the other things I found out recycling cycling is that there are no strangers in cycling. There no, are. No, no. Which, when you're a combat veteran, which I've been an observer all this time, you want to ask me what I do, I've become an observer and just a listener. And one of the things I've noticed is that with cycling, you're no longer alone. You know one cyclist, you know 25. And that is huge because when you leave the military, this is an observation, a lot of the issues that happen is that loneliness. You don't have that guy here that you know him or he's right here in town and he's quickly away. So how do you reconnect? Then the other area that I've worked in for the last three years, which I'm going to get you out, (laughs) is fly fishing. So what happens on the river stays on the river. Um, I'll set the fly, they set the tone, and we usually spend eight and a half to nine hours a day fly fishing.
2: And that's their choice. Yeah, and I just want to jump in because I think... This point about disconnection is really true to my experience. That it's interesting because as one of the things that comes up around not just treatment, but veterans' experience, I think, is the sense of disconnection from other people. And that's why I think things like your Safeway conversations in the morning are probably some of the most potent interventions that exist. It really is. And. Uh, because one of the interesting things that happens in the military, and this is part of the genius in some ways of functioning as a war machine, is that the entire process of joining the military, being a part of it, is a dehumanizing process. is a disconnecting process, in the sense that when you join, uh, the point is to break you down and rebuild you back up as a unit. Like as, so, you, you kind of lose your individuality in some way, and then. Another process happens, I think, when you enter war or experiences where you're required to sort of dehumanize the other to make them an enemy. Uh, In order to do that, you, I think, have to sort of dehumanize part of yourself in that process. And along with that, then, when you have experiences that kind of shatter your everyday assumptions about how the world works then you end up sort of feeling very existentially alone, I think, in that process. So, you know, when, uh, you know, people nowadays, I think, you know, tragedies around like mass shootings and those sorts of things, you know, when people go through those sorts of things, one of the things you hear most frequently is... I feel very alone in this experience, you know, I feel disconnected from other people. And because I think one of the things that happens is that you get disconnected from those kind of common themes of how the world should work and what happens in those moments. So maybe you thought, oh yeah, uh, you know, people don't get shot every day and, uh, you know, the world is inherently kind of safe. And I think that's a relevant belief to have because otherwise you can't just walk down the street and feel comfortable in your own skin. And so I think when service members go into war zones, experience this disconnect—not just from themselves, from other people, but also from sort of like these thematic ways of being in the world. You know, this sense of safety and security, and doing things that really shatter some of those assumptions that we hold about how life works—that it creates this sort of fundamental disconnect from other people around us, and we feel like our experiences are are lonely and. Hours and the other people won't share them. Even from the people around us, I think that we um, are serving with. Now, I think on the battlefield, that might be a little bit different because you still have the connection of the people you're still with. But when you come back home, into a society perhaps that does not understand that experience, hasn't sat in the VA waiting room for hours at a time to, you know, to learn it, um, and haven't really sat down with folks to to get a sense to dwell on that experience with them. Then you experience, I think, on top of that, another disconnect.
4: What is it Three stages of normal.
2: Right. Yeah, you have yeah. the normal before <laughs> you
4: join the military, yes. Then you get a new normal when you're in the military, then you get the third normal when you leave the military. Yeah. And number three is not associated with
1: the woman. No, it's a very alienating experience.
4: One of the things that um, someone asked me once why I was able to relate to the guys so quickly. My father was an amputee. He was a BTK, which means a below-the-knee amputee. I had a head injury, so that was a quick bonding. I understood um, sticky notes. I understood not remembering something. My brain getting too tired to react. I understood all those things. But one of the biggest things was, I have an irreverent sense of the world, and I could take the worst thing and turn it around and bring laughter to it, because one of the things that starts seeping away is just joy and laughter and having someone you can laugh with and just be yourself with. You know, I think that's one of the disconnects is you come back and you're with the civilian population and no one gets your joke. So you say something, and they look at you like you're a fruit. And you're like, oh yeah, that's not civilian savvy. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, it's this sense of kind of misattunement from people that they, even in those moments where I think people are, Trying to be human with you, uh, the, because of the culture—I mean, God, how many uh, different acronyms do we have across different service branches? You know, right. even just the language that we use when that comes about, and people will say things like, "Oh, I, I don't know if I should laugh at that really dark joke." I think the underlying message that gets communicated is, "I don't get it," but right. I, I can't can't be in that experience with you or, or approximate it in some way. And so there's this, you know, sense of even kind of pulling away further. I'm an alien here. So, my, one of the most moving experiences I had as um, the square that was leading all these criminals. We had sit downs, right, as you do when you're bonding with people. When we're out, I, you know, I took it upon myself to remind us all why we're out there, and it was each other. Leave um, this—the girlfriends, the boyfriends—they're all in, by the way. So that was the joke. Um, and the kids and the family in the tent when we went out there. So when we had these sit-downs, some of them were really, really frank. And one evening, one of the soldiers started, so why did you join the military? And remember, my the men in my uh, company, uh, in this platoon in particular, Um, Royal National Guard. They joined because they wanted to be there for their community. They wanted to be there when big things happened to help their community. This band of criminals wanted to be there for their community, and that was really moving to them. And, um, and I have to think to myself, what is wrong with the rest of us? we a group of people that think like that, have such a hard time in our society. And they did before they came, and it got worse when they came back. Because now, not only did they have that disconnect in how they were supposed to be in social, but they have exactly what you're talking about. They have this experience that the people around them didn't know
1: how to connect
4: And for me, it was easier to connect to some of these men in their own families because they're still remembering the boy that joined. And I would meet these guys and women afterwards. So that's my reality. This is who they are. And I accept them as they are now. Not 10 years ago, three years ago, two tours, nine tours, whatever the number is. And that's important to find those people that can help and accept you now to help make that transfer back into the civilian world. Because it is,
2: you know, the officers, you got to leave that rank up on that door when you walk through it. And that's a hard one for a lot of them to do. Well, that when we were in country, it's interesting you say that. I, we were the night crew with our plastic armor camps, on, plastic campus arm, but i looking for bombs. But I always had my MVG cover on my uh, Kevlar and always had my black vest on the other rank, if you will. Mm-hmm. My soldiers didn't need to see that, they knew who I was. And yeah. I was out there with them. Um, so I was really hard to find. So they used to make games of that. Um, being out there with them, being out there and sharing experiences, um, doing what I asked them to do, mm-hmm. doing what I ordered them to do, um,
1: was huge, experiencing good. what they were experiencing and, and
2: contributing to that, regardless of me having to sleep later that day to cover what I wasn't doing that other people thought should. Mm-hmm. But those soldiers... Um, with that kind of bonding, even though I was super square, I found solace in, in somebody whom they thought they were going to have trouble with when I was first transferred to you know, the scene, that they had another brother. Um, and that's really important. I think before I deployed, I watched Black Hawk Down, and that's one of the lines that stuck with me the most. You know, when they're talking about why you do it for the guy next to you. And it's really impossible to get it. I didn't get it until I'm out on an IED myself on the ground, face first, dealing with this thing with those guys get in my back and vice versa. And, um, yeah, so it's, it really is about that. And I know we've talked about pieces of that. Um, They're turning as well. And, uh um, that becomes a bomb that you can't break it. you can fight like cats and dogs but when the real stuff happens you know, we're all there together. I had soldiers whose greatest conflict that I had to try and deal with was when the orders I was required to give won't conflict, and when they're and in, in, when we were ordered to not communicate with the children, when we were ordered not to engage and be kind to the citizens in some way that they felt was inappropriate, they really had a hard time because. This is the same bunch that went for the community, and I don't know that I've ever met um,
1: a group of soldiers who, as a group, didn't have some of that compassion once they've been through some tough stuff.